Okay, we're in chapter 8, and we got up to verse 7, and now the uh, scripture is going to get us back on track in dealing with the national sphere, the kings of Judea, the kings of Israel, and the succession of these kings, and Elisha will be involved in that as well. So let's look now at verse 7. Ve'avo Elisha Damasik, and Elisha came to Damascus. Ubenadad melech aram chole. And Ben-Adad was sick. Now, Ben-Adad is the king of Syria, the king of uh, Aram. And he's probably the same Ben-Hadad who fought against Ahab, even though we saw there were a couple Ben-Hadads, right, who were kings of Aram. And he's ill. And it says that they told Ben-Hadad, Hey, you know what? The man of God is coming down here. So it's not every day that the man of God travels to Syria. And he's all, Ad-Hena, it's all the way up here he's coming. So that's probably gives like a glimmer of hope. Maybe Benadad could turn to him and the way Naaman, his army captain, turned to Elisha and got cured from his leprosy. So before we go on and see what happens here, we gotta examine the verse and Elisha came to Damascus. So it seems like a simple enough verse, a simple enough uh, uh, beginning of a verse. Elisha wandered or traveled to Damascus, but it's not an everyday thing that the, that the prophet, of the Jewish prophet, goes to, to another country. And especially when he's going, what is he going to do? Well, we're going to see as we go along, he's, go, he's on his way to anoint a new king of Aram named Hazael. That's a strange a role of a prophet. I mean, we saw Yonah the prophet go to Nineveh. He went to a, another country there and warned them of impending tragedy in the book of uh, Yonah, right? But... Here, um, we want to examine what is Elisha doing in Damascus. So again, the simple understanding is he's going to um, anoint Hazael, which we're going to see that as we go forward. Now, this anointing of the king of Aram and going to Damascus, it was really supposed to happen in the days of Elijah. Because if we go back to chapter 19 in Kings 1, what happened? And that's when Elijah was um, kind of in his last legs, He's about to retire from his role as prophet. And before he anoints Elisha, God told Elijah to go to Damascus. This is chapter 19, verse 15. Basically what it says here, he says, go to Damascus and anoint Hazael as king of, as king of Aram. But that didn't happen. Elijah never did that. Why didn't he do it? Because two chapters later, Ahab repented. And when Ahab repented, that delayed the process because the reason that Elijah is anointing Hazael or was supposed to anoint Hazael and the reason Elisha is about to anoint the new king Hazael over Aram is to punish the ten tribes for their sins, to punish the house of Ahab for its sin. They haven't been punished yet. And so Hazael is like this stick in Kodesh Baruch Hu's hand that um, is going to punish the Jewish people for their sins. Now, Elijah was also supposed to anoint Yehu ben Nimshi. That's the next verse. You're going to anoint Yehu ben Nimshi as king of Israel. That's also a person, a king, a Jewish king now, who will also wreak havoc on the house of Ahab. But again, it didn't happen in the days of Ahab, but it's going to happen now. And it says that explicitly in the last verse in chapter 21, in Kings 1, when Ahab did tshuva, the Lord said to Elijah that, you saw that Ahab has humbled himself before me? This is after uh, Ahab tore um, 
placed a sackcloth upon his skin after he was informed that he will be punished for his uh, murder of Navot. Right? Remember that story with the Kerem of Navot, Navot's vineyard? At the end of that chapter, Ahab repents, and Hashem says to Elijah, since he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the evil during his days. I'll bring the evil upon his house in the days of his son. So here we have it now. We're in the days of his son. We're in the days of Yoram. And now Elisha is going to carry it out. So again, it was a delayed process. So that's why he's going to Damascus. Now, there's an agotic interpretation here that we once talked about. And now we're going to get into it a little more in depth. And it says that Elisha came to Damascus. Why? Because he was going there because Gehezi was there and he wanted Gehezi to repent. He's trying to convince Gehezi to repent of his sins. Now, what's that all about? Well, we, t- we, t- we touched upon that when we learned about the similarity between Gehezi and Jesus from Nazareth, that they were both, uh, they were both students of great, great teachers and they both sinned. They went off the path and their teachers rejected them harshly and they went way off the deep end after that. If you recall, we learned that, um, comparing Gehezi to Jesus Christ there. Now we're going to concentrate here on Gehezi. He went to Damascus. Now this is again the Midrash, but let's see what how it uh, unfolds. Now the Redak says, why would Gehezi be in Damascus, that Elisha has to chase him down? Because he was there to request favors from Naaman, whose leprosy had clung to him. Remember Gehezi was stricken with leprosy? Because Elisha punished him and said, the uh, leprosy of Naaman will cling to you, right? So that's why Gehezi is in Damascus, according to the Midrash. And the Talmud continues to relate that Elisha told Gehezi, repent. And, Eli- and Gehezi said, no. I mean, I learned from you that if one sins and makes others sin, he cannot repent because he can't repent for other people's sins. He can only repent for his own sin. And Gehezi was somebody who was machti. He made others sin. So then the Talmud goes into it. What did Gehezi do to make the Jews sin? So it says the following. Yerovam ben Avat, if you recall, had erected a calf, one in Betel and one in Dan, in the northern and southern borders of his kingdom. And he said to the Jewish people, you don't have to go to the temple. You can worship these calves in Betel and Dan, and that will be a replacement for going to Jerusalem. And that eventually involved into a paganism and idol worship. Well, what Gehezi did is that he knew the Kabbalah and the mystical aspects of Judaism and he kind of went on the dark side and he used the divine names of Hashem which are used by the Kabbalists, the annotations of, of uh, Hashem's name and he engraved the divine name in the mouth of one of these calves and the calf would start to talk, you know, like Mr. Ed, the horse, but here we have a talking calf and it would say it would utter the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. These calves started to talk. And that, of course, reinforced the paganism that was going rampant in the days, in those days. And that's how Gehezi made others sin. And Elisha was trying to bring him back. So, uh, a lot of times we want to take the Agada, a Midrash like that, and kind of reconcile it with the Pshat. Reconcile it with the understanding the simple understanding of the verse that he went to Damascus to anoint Ben-Hadad, king of Aram. So Rav Ariel in his book, Miktash Melech, Rav Ariel has a uh, commentary on the Bible, and here he tries to reconcile 
the two, um, the Midrash, with the simple understanding. And I'm going to read it here because it's very, very uh, interesting. I don't want to miss out. I'm trying to translate as I go along. This is first of all, you have to understand that the anointing of Chazael over Aram, that's like the, the beginning of the end for, for the ten tribes. It's the beginning of their destruction. Of eventually, and not far from, long from now, they're going to be exiled, the ten tribes will be, you know, by Assyria. But already Aram is going to start to wreak havoc on them and kind of start the process of their demise. And you can ask, how did Chazael, this king of Aram, who's about to be king, get the power to do it, to wreak such havoc on the ten tribes, to have such power? And the answer is, the Jews gave him the power. Gechezi represents the weak spot of the ten tribes, their Achilles heel. What's their Achilles heel? What's their weakness? What's their flaw? Their flaw is that the cares of Yeravam were in that kingdom and they that, that sin of Yeravam really escorted Machut Yisrael Koladarot. Since Yeravam was around, that first king, those calves, that symbolized the sins of the ten tribes. That's why all these kings that were mentioned after Yeravam, they were, they were um, described as going in the way of Yeravam and Avat. What does that mean? They let the calves remain. The people continued going to Beit El and Dan to worship these calves, and it, it evolved into paganism, very strong paganism. And that's really the reason for the Chorban. That's really caused the demise of the ten tribes. That's the root of it. So Gehezi was reinforcing that. He was reinforcing uh, the sin. And so we now can understand Elisha now is going to anoint Chazael. He's, and he's really what he's doing really by doing that is um, putting a sword in the hand of Chazael to punish the Jewish people. Because of what Gehezi was doing and what the Jewish people were doing. So Elisha is now going to Damascus and he's trying to bring Gehezi back to Tshuva. That's what the Midrash is saying. Yeah, he's going to anoint Chazael to punish the Jewish people, but he wants to bring back Gehezi. He wants them to repent. He wants to fix the problem. The problem of the Jewish people here is those calves. And therefore, Gehezi, what does it say, did not repent. And that is a symbol of the Jewish people did not repent for their sin. That is, Elisha wasn't able to bring him back to Tshuva. He tried. He did all these miracles. Just like Elijah did miracles for the Jewish people, knowing that the, the destruction of the ten tribes is imminent, that it's going to happen soon if they don't do something drastic. But alas, it didn't work. Gehezi did not do Tshuva. Like the uh, Gemara says, Aval Gehezi lok chazar. He did not repent. And then what is left for Elisha to do? The only thing, only option left for him is to go and anoint Chazael and to do it regrettably as he cries uh, and begrudgingly, we'll see, will have to anoint the Chazael to be the stick of Hashem's fury over the ten tribes, the kingdom of Israel. Okay, so that's how we um, kind of, again, reconcile the Midrash with the Pshat. So let's go along now with the simple understanding now, verse 8. Ve'omer melech el Chazael. And the king said to Chazael. Now, Chazael at this point is not the king of Aram. He's just a servant of Ben-Adad. He doesn't have any royal claim to the throne. And he is functioning here as the servant of Ben-Adad. And Ben-Adad tells Chazael, approach the man of God. Kach mincha 
take a gift, and go towards the man of God, and inquire of the Lord from him, and ask him, will I recover from this illness? And this again is reminiscent when Yeravam and Avad sent his wife to Achir Shiloni when their son was sick and asked uh, to ask the prophet if her, the son will recover, right? And they got really bad news here. So Chazael now is on his mission. Again, Chazael is the, is the, he's the king in waiting, but he doesn't know it. And he's now going, fulfilling his mission. And he says in verse 9, And Chazael went towards him. And he took a gift in his hand. The whole two of Damascus and all the best stuff that comes out of Damascus, Masa Arbim Gamal, enough for forty camels to carry. So you're talking about some serious gifts. I mean, they really hold Elisha in high esteem in here in Syria. Probably so they saw the miracles, you know, that he did in those wars we saw uh, against the Jewish people. He was performing miracles left and right. He cured Aram uh, uh, Naaman. Who is the head of the army of Rome? So they really know about him and they, you know, revere him probably more than the Jews do. So they send him these gifts, and you know, Elisha doesn't always take gifts, right? We saw with Naaman, he refused the gifts of Naaman, but this is a different situation. He probably took these gifts, these gifts. So Chazael stands before Gehezi, excuse me, before Elisha. He stands before him. Again, that's a sign of respect. And he says, and listen to the words of, of uh, reverence towards the Prophet. Your son Ben-Adad, king of Aram, has sent me. Alecha, to you. Lemor. And he's saying, And he wants me to ask you, will I recover from this illness? So that's um, the question posed now to Elisha, if Ben-Adad will recover. So Elisha says the following. So Elisha said to Chazael the following. Go and tell him, Say that, tell him that you will live. Tell him you will live. I will know that the Lord has showed me that he's really going to die. So what's going on? Why does Elisha want Chazael to lie to Ben-Adad and tell him he's going to live when actually the Lord has shown him he's going to die? So the simple understanding is that he doesn't want to torture Ben-Adad. You know, by telling him he's going to die, like the anticipation is worth is worse than dying the actual dying. So, you know, Rahman is on him. They're not gonna they don't have to tell him he's gonna die, just let him die and without telling him, right? The other possibility is that if Benadad knows he's gonna die, then he'll prepare himself, he'll prepare an heir to the throne. He'll make his son the king. And we don't want that. We don't want Benadad's son to rule. We want Chazael to rule. So don't let him know he's gonna die. That way he won't make any plans to again set up his son as an heir. And the Radak has an interesting take on this. He says that what Elisha is saying here is that tell him he's going to live, right? Tell him you'll live. But I showed him, the Lord has showed me that he's going to die. And that's like a hint to Chazael that you should take Ben-Hadad out. You should eliminate Ben-Hadad. Why? Because he's saying he's going to live. That he's, he's going to survive from the illness. He's going to live from the, this particular illness. But Hashem has shown me that he's going to die. And that's an innuendo to Chazael that he should kill uh, Ben-Adad because Chazael is going to be the next king. And that's what he's going to reveal to him a couple verses from now. Okay, basically that's what happened. So maybe that's what the Redak sees that as a logical um, perush here, commentary. Okay, so let's look at now in verse 11. 
וימד את פניו, וישם את בוש, ויבך איש אלוקים. Now we get a really fascinating verse here, and we see the human quality in Elisha. He's so human, he's so sensitive, he's so real, feels the pain of the Jewish people, and he's going to cry, because he sees in a prophecy the cruelty that Chazael is going to inflict on Am Yisrael. So what is he doing? It says he made his face expressionless. Vayemodet panav, from the word stand. Literally, he made his face stand in place. That is, he's restraining his, his outburst of, of crying. So he's, they don't want to cry right away in front of this Gentile guy, you know, this guy. He don't want to show him that he's upset. So it's, and he waited, or it could mean interpreted that he was embarrassed. Bosh could also be too embarrassed. He was embarrassed not to do anything, but he was just holding it back and he couldn't speak. So he just kept his face like expressionless or some perushim was that he put his face to the side. Vayamedet panav, he held it to the side. He didn't want to show he's going to cry. And then vayef isha and the man of God cried. And again, we see he's a man of God, isha but he's very, very human as well. So it says in verse 12, vayomer chazel, madu adani bocheh. So chazel says, why does my Lord weep? Because I know what you're going to do to the children of Israel. The evil, the ra, you're going to do to the children of Israel. I see you in my prophecy that you're going to set fire to their fortresses. And I see that you're going to slay their youths with the sword. And their infants, you're going to dash them against the rocks and break them into pieces. The word teratesh has a couple perushim, a few um, possible, possible meanings. None of them are good. It could be that it means that you will abandon, the, the infants will be abandoned, not broken apart, because uh, their parents will be killed and they will be abandoned. So in any case, we're talking about tragedy. And it says also, what is Elisha C? And you will rip open, you're going to rip apart their pregnant women. So all that Elisha saw, and that's why he broke out crying. So it says in verse 13, And Chazel said to him, Now, how can your servant, a dog like me, perform such mighty deeds? So Chazel doesn't understand. I mean, he's not the king. He's just a servant. So he, he's not upset about doing what Elisha said. He doesn't say to Elisha, I wouldn't do such a thing. I respect you and your people. No, he, he realized, he doesn't even say that. He says that there's no way I have the power to do it. I'm just a dog. You know, that's what he means by that. He's powerless to do such a thing. And Elisha says to him, Vayomer Elisha, no, no, Hashem no, the Lord has shown me that you're going to be king over Aram. That is, you're going to get the power to do it. So according to the Redak, that was the hint that now Chazael has to now take out the sick ben Adad and eliminate him. And that's what he's going to do now. Verse 14, And he left Elisha, and he went to his master. And his master asked him, What did Elisha say to you? He told me you're going to live. And it says in verse 15, And on the next day, He took a blanket, he dipped it in the water, 
and he spread it over his face. That is, it seems like Chazael here is suffocating Benadad, and he died. So either he suffocated him with the blanket, but why did he dip it into water? So it could be that he didn't, that, it's not that he choked him to death or stuffed him, his face and suffocated him, but he got him sicker by pouring like cold water over his face. In any case, he hastened the death of Benadad. And Chazael reigned in his stead. So there you have it. You have the, the phenomenon of a Jewish prophet going to the foreign land, anointing Chazael to be the rod of fury against the house of Ahab and the ten tribes. And we'll stop here.